You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. What would you say is life's worthiest occupation? If you're patriotic, you might say, fulfilling the office of the President of the United States. If you have a greater sense of man's interrelatedness, you might say being the Secretary General of the United Nations. Those of you who are more attuned to the plight of poor people might say alleviating poverty in the world, alleviating world hunger. Or maybe those of you who are very humanistic might say finding an option for cancer, finding a cure for this dread disease. Maybe more of you might say, well, life's worthy its occupation would be like being an evangelist in the vein of a Billy Graham and being used by God to bring many people to faith in God. Now, all of those things which I've mentioned and probably many which you thought that I did not mention are worthy occupations, but they are not the worthiest occupation. God is very clear in indicating that the worthiest occupation for any one of us is to know Him and to do whatever is necessary in order to know him. This verse of scripture which we read, which first was spoken by David under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to his son Solomon, has direct relevance to our lives today. Imagine the scene. David was getting ready to pass the torch to his son Solomon. He was abdicating the throne. He was going to crown Solomon king of Israel. In order to do this, he had assembled all the political and military leaders of Israel. They were all there in Jerusalem. Conventional wisdom would have indicated that David, as he stood there before this vast throng of leaders and he spoke to his son Solomon, he would have suggested to him perhaps to take a crash course in political science or else to beef up his military forces and develop a keener sense of military strategy. But our eyes seem to play tricks on us when we read what David says to Solomon in verse 9. Look at it again. As for you, my son, Solomon, know the God of your father. Now I'd like to interject a little sanctified imagination at this point. We do know that David had more than one son. Solomon was not his only son. He had several sons, among whom were Amnon and Absalom and Adonijah. My suggestion to you today is Whenever he gave each of these men their particular responsibilities within the kingdom, he sat down with them, maybe not in as public a way as he did with Solomon, but he sat down with them and he said, As for you, my son Absalom, know the God of your father. As for you, my son Adonijah, know the God of your father. As for you, my son Amnon, know the God of your father. What this says to us is no matter where we find ourselves in God's kingdom, whether we're at the top as Solomon was or somewhere between the top and the bottom as these other three sons were, this occupation of seeking and knowing God is indeed the worthiest occupation. And it can be pursued no matter what station we occupy in life. It's wonderful to know that anybody who is doing anything that's not unethical can pursue the knowledge of God whether you're a professional person or a blue-collar person, a student, 
a housewife, homemaker, whatever your calling in life is, the main focus of your life should be to get to know God. Now let me stop just a moment and briefly explain what the word know really meant. This is not a word which suggests intellectual knowledge. It's not the kind of word that suggests that we are to incorporate a certain set of truths about God into our consciousness as the primary focus of our lives. As important as that is, and it is important, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, it is important for us to know the truths about God as they are propositionally spelled out in Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. Every word of it is God-breathed. Therefore, it's very important. However, this word which is translated know here is the word which means to know in one's experience. There are far too many people who come to places like this week in and week out who have heads crammed full of facts about the triune God but do not have a sense of His activity in their lives. They do not have intimacy with God that expresses itself in experience with God. What about you? Are you a person in whose life God seems to be dormant? Let me remind you that one of the attributes of God is not hibernation. God never sleeps, nor He never slumbers. He's always active in His people's lives. And as we open our lives to Him in getting to know Him, He expresses Himself very clearly to us. I would assume, and I think I'm safe in doing so, that you would not be here today if you were not interested in knowing God. Am I safe in assuming that? I trust that I am. So how are we to set about getting to know God? Well, there are two things that this passage of Scripture teaches us. They're simple things to understand. They're a little bit more difficult to apply. The first thing is that knowing God can be accomplished by seeking Him continually. Every word that I said in that one sentence is important. And I refer you, don't look it up now, but if you're taking notes, jot it down. 1 Chronicles 16, 11, David says this, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. We're to be people who are about the business of seeking the Lord so that we can get to know the Lord. Now, let me ask you, what is it about us that makes us resist seeking the Lord. Is there anybody here besides me who would be willing to admit that it is not your natural inclination to seek the Lord and make that the habit of your life? Sometimes I have to fight myself. In fact, more often than not, I have to fight myself to make myself seek the Lord. What is it that makes it difficult in our being in this regard? Well, the thought that came to me immediately, and you probably have other thoughts, but this is the one which came to me immediately, is laziness. And this is reflected in the sense that many times we want to hire somebody to seek God for us. Yeah. Right? You want the pastor to seek God for you, the pastors to seek God. You want your parents to seek God for you. You want your spouse to seek God for you. Remember when Moses had just received the Ten Commandments and he came down from Mount Sinai and the people said to him, you speak to us yourself and we will listen to you, but let not God speak to us lest we die. Now understand, these were redeemed people. They were the people of God, but they did not want God to speak to them because they were fearful and they were right that when God really speaks to us, we do die. Now, many of you are alive today, I think, 
and you've heard God speak to you. So what do I mean? Well, let me illustrate it this way. During World War II, there was a man who eventually was martyred for his faith. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor, and he spoke out against the Third Reich, and it ended up resulting in his death. He was hanged just a few months before VE Day. And before that, however, he was a brilliant man. He wrote a classic book on the matter of discipleship. It's entitled The Cost of Discipleship. If you want to really be challenged in your Christian life, read the book. I'm only going to quote one line from this great book. He says in that book, when Christ bids a man to come and follow him, Christ bids that man to come and die. In order for you and me to really follow Jesus and to hear the voice of God, it calls us to die to ourselves in little ways, taking up our cross daily, saying no to ourselves in order that we might say yes to God. So our laziness stands in the way. Getting to know God is the most taxing work, which should come as no surprise to us since it's the most important work if I'm on the right track, and I believe I am. Although getting to know God requires hard work, it is an endeavor that is open to every person here today. Several years ago, a man came to tune pianos in the building where our church met. His name is Chuck Bowman. Mr. Bowman is a graduate of the University of Chicago Music School, a very prestigious music school. For 31 years, he had served as a professional musician, and I was trying to get to know him in hopes I could witness to him, talk to him about his relationship to the Lord, and I asked him a question that I really had interest in, and the question was, Mr. Bowman, what does it take to be a piano tuner? And the answer which he gave me stunned me, quite frankly, and let me read it to you. This is what he said. Everyone born with normal hearing is equipped to do tuning. What I do is not unusual. Learning to hear music is a matter of concentration and training. It takes practice. No one person has any advantage over another. All are born with the same equipment, but most of it is wasted. I begin to think about that in relationship to our ability to hear from God. There are several things that are true about us in this regard. Listen. The first thing that is true is we all have the equipment to hear God. Do you remember in reading the New Testament how frequently Jesus would say, let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit of God is saying? Now what sort of ears did Jesus refer to when he said that? He was talking not about these ears, and I've got some big ones, but he was talking about these ears. I hope my spiritual ears are at least as big as my physical ears are. And I would hope that my spiritual hearing would be greater, actually, than my physical sense of hearing. So we all have, if we are born again, and some of you are not born again. You've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So you really can't hear from God until you receive Jesus as your Savior. And I hope you do that before the day is over. But supposing that we have received Christ, all of us have the necessary equipment to hear God. No one has an advantage. Just because I'm a preacher and I've been doing this for many years, and I've been to seminary, doesn't mean I have any advantage over you in hearing God. God is indiscriminate in his speaking to his people if they have ears to hear. Hearing God should be a normal part of our experience. 
as Christians. Remember what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here's the tragedy, though. Most of us waste our chances to know God, to hear God, due to a lack of concentration, discipline, and training, i.e. laziness. We're just too lazy to spend the time necessary to seek God with a whole heart. David broke the self-indulgent bonds of laziness in his own life by rising early to seek God. In Psalm 63, David says, Early will I seek thee. Now, he was a shepherd. He had to get up early. And I know many of you are not morning people. We don't know whether David was a morning person or not. But what we do know is whenever he got up, he made the Lord the central focus of his life. Whenever you rise, if you and I will commit ourselves to make seeking God the focus of our life at the outset, what do you think the odds will be that we'll seek him the rest of the day? They'll be greatly enhanced. The possibility of our seeking God all day must begin with the necessity of our seeking him at the beginning of the day. Now, here's another reason in my own life that I have determined keeps me from seeking God continually and consequently not knowing him better than I otherwise would. It's pride. May I explain what I mean by that? I think you know what pride is, but let me explain how that works out in my life. Seeking God is a very inconspicuous activity. You have no way of knowing whether I am continually seeking God because it's a private activity between God and me. Is that true? I could stand up here week after week after week and teach the Bible, speak the truth of God, and never seek God. Now, eventually that would become very apparent. But pastors can be very adept at covering up, and I have no other pastor except me in mind here, and faking it. God forbid that I would ever fake it ever again. I've faked it before, and I'm not going to tell you when, but I have done it before. And I'm not proud of it. God's forgiven me for that. But I hope you understand that because it does not appeal to our egos. Do you know what the worst kind of pride is? It's religious pride. It's pride that loves to parade up and down in front of people like I'm doing here today. Parade up and down. It's the pharisaical pride that stands on the street corner and prays to the Lord on the street corner and gives alms to the poor so that everybody can see it and throws the money into the treasury just as hard as it can be flung to make as much noise as possible so people will notice how much you're giving to the Lord. That is religious pride, and it's the most deadly sort of pride, and it's the most detestable, I would suggest to you, to God. God detests spiritual pride. It's what cost Jesus his life when he was crucified. To enter God's presence is to know yourself better, which will require change. Anytime you and I really are seeking God, we're coming into his presence. And because he's a holy God and I'm an unholy man, there has to be some adjusting going on. I have to adjust to God. And when I or you or anyone else is unwilling to change, we abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives because we don't want to get close to God because being close to God will necessitate our repenting of our sin and changing in our lives. Now, what are the results of not seeking God? I'm not going to linger long here, but let's look again at verse 9. The result is given in the last line of verse 9 of 
1 Chronicles 28. But if you forsake God, God will reject you forever. That's a sobering statement. Are you on the brink of forsaking God? God forbid that you would do that. Why does God take such drastic measures in this matter when we do not seek Him, indeed when we forsake Him? is because evil results from not seeking God. And God is bound by His holiness to punish evil. In 2 Chronicles 12, 14, this is what is said about Rehoboam, the wicked son of King Solomon. He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Do you know, if I'm putting my heart in the direction of seeking God, I can't do evil. I can't do evil and seek God at the same time, can I? And nor can you. So that's why God takes such drastic measures in this matter of seeking Him. Now, let me ask a third question of this text, and it is this. What must you do to get to know God? Well, we have to seek Him continually. Remember 1 Chronicles 16, 11? In Jeremiah 29, the Bible says, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. To know God, we must spend time with God. To know God, we must spend time alone with Him. If you are intent upon getting to know someone, do you do it in a crowd? Now think about it a moment. You guys who are married or who are thinking about it, and you've got a girl you're courting, uh, do you want to get to know her in a crowd? You want to have some time alone, correct? Now, far too many people come too, far too often to a place like this to get to know God in a crowd. Can people get to know God in a place like this when there's three or 400 people present? Well, yes, but only superficially. You can never really get to know God until you spend time alone with God and especially spend time alone listening to God. The word which is translated know, I've alluded to it once, let me give another nuance of meaning. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. This is knowledge which comes not so much by seeing, but it comes from hearing. Hearing from the Lord. Having an intimate relationship with the Lord and God speaking to you in your life. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian philosopher, said this, a man prayed... And at first, he thought that prayer was talking. But he became more and more quiet until the end, he realized that prayer is listening. Now, most of the time, when we think of prayer, we're talking about somebody getting up here, or you doing privately, just speaking to God. May I share with you, very briefly, and you can jot this down if you want to, my own routine, and I don't want to routinize, but just to give you an idea, this is what I do when I draw aside on a daily basis to seek God. I begin by looking at Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter, verses 1 and 2, which say this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore shut up. Now, that's the tag I put on the end of that. That's not in your Bible. <laughs> so what is my primary role when I come to spend time seeking God? It's to be quiet 
to listen. That's why we call this the quiet time sometimes. Psalm 100 verse 4 is the next verse I think about or read. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. I'm on my way to worship God. In my heart, where is he? He's in my heart. What is my body? My body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. So I'm focusing in on God, and Christ is in me by his Spirit. And so I enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. I spend some moments praising the Lord and thanking the Lord for who he is and what he's done. Then I think of Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes, David wrote, that I may see wonderful things in your law. There's no way I will ever understand or hear the voice of God without God willing to open my eyes so that I can understand. So I have to consciously ask the Lord, Lord, speak to me through your word. And then I get specific with the Lord. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Notice the focus, me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Lord, you know, know me. I'm an open book to you. You're all knowing. But Lord, please reveal those things in my life which need to be repented of and the adjustments which I need to make to you, Lord. And then Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Let thy good spirit lead me on level ground. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a much more difficult time doing the will of God than knowing the will of God. Is that true of anyone else here this morning? It's one thing to know the will of God. It's quite another to do it. So I have to ask the Lord, Lord, teach me to do it. Let your good spirit empower me. Lead me, Lord. And then I go to Psalm 8611, which says, Teach me thy way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Now, David was the one who authored that, and the suggestion was his heart was fragmented. Do you ever feel like that when you come to seek the Lord? And this is why to go through an exercise like this is very helpful for me, and it should be for you too. It's because we're pulled in so many different directions. We're pulled by our family. We're pulled by our career. We're pulled by our service in the church. We're pulled by our hobbies. We're pulled by all kinds of things. And when we need to pray, Lord, please unite my heart so I can fear you, so I can know you, so that I can fulfill life's worthiest occupation in doing that. Now, here's the way I continue. I open the Bible, and I don't open it randomly. I, I follow a guide. I try to read through the Bible every year, and I just read what's suggested for that day. I read it. That may be too much for you, and if it is, just read a section a day. Don't, you don't have to read the whole chapter, maybe a section, but listen to the Lord. And when I finish listening to the Lord... You know what my temptation is and my tendency, not merely my temptation, but my tendency, close the book and go out there because I've got a thousand things I've got to do that day. A thousand things. Anybody else like that? Okay. Now, suppose you had an audience with President Bush, putting your political persuasions aside. If you were invited to come and spend 30 minutes in the Oval Office and at the outset, you didn't know how long the president wanted you there. He just invited you. Would you go? Would you ask your boss for the day off to go? Would you charge the airfare even though you don't have the money to go? Some of you wouldn't, but most of us would. We'd go. And if we sat there in the Oval Office, we would sit, and would we do a lot of talking? Probably not. We'd do a lot of listening. And what would determine when we got up and left? 
It's when the president or his handler said it's time to go. There's somebody else here, right? Correct. What we ought to do is remember what Ecclesiastes, the 8th chapter and the 11th verse says. Do not be in a hurry to leave the presence of the king. This is not any president who's going to be in office for four or eight years. This is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the potentate of the universe who will rule forever. And what we're coming before him is to listen to him in a leisurely way. When we are concentrating on getting to know another person, do we incessantly look at our watch, look at the clock, look up and down? I don't think so. The tendency is just to clear the calendar when you're really wanting to get to know someone. Now here's another thing. Going back to 1 Chronicles 16, 11, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. Seek His face. Notice we're to seek His face and not His hand. Men, let me go back to you. When you were dating your wife, did you focus on her hands or on her face? Well, if you're normal, you focused on her face. Because that's how you got to know her. That's how you get to know anybody, right? You look in the person's face, correct? And this is true for us. David, once more, in one of the Psalms, the 42nd Psalm, he says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O Lord. He goes on, My soul thirsts for the living God. My soul thirsts for thee. And he, you can just almost sense his excitement. When can I come and see the face of God? This is something that was a passion for David. Remember, it was the priority of his life, and he wanted to communicate this to his son because he knew it was the key that unlocked the door to success, seeking the face of God. When we look at a person's hand, what does the hand represent? One of the 12-year-olds in our middle service gave a perfect answer. He said, a hand does work. And when we come to the Lord... Truth be known, most of us come not seeking the face of the Lord. We come seeking the hand of God. God, do this for me. Do that for me. Do the other for me. Am I right? Unfortunately, I know I am right. Instead of seeking the face of God to get to know him, we need to seek his face. What will be God's response to our seeking him? Well, look again at verse 9. It says in the middle, For the Lord searches all hearts, and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. How many parents here can recall a time in your children's lives when they were just beginning to toddle, maybe or a little older, they're preschoolers, and you were teaching them to play hide-and-seek? And it was your turn to hide. Now, do you remember what you did? If you were a good daddy or a good mom, what you did was this. You went, but you didn't hide so that you couldn't be found. You were in a very conspicuous place so you could be found, right? You know, our God is a God who wants us to find him. He does not hide. He positions himself so that we can find him. Listen to a couple of things he says in both Testaments. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, If you will return to me, I will return to you. James chapter 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God wants intimacy with us. He wants fellowship with us. God meets us where we are and slowly moves us along into a deeper relationship with him as we take an opportunity to do that. What will be your reward for seeking him? Well, you'll find life. Amos chapter 5 verse 4, God says, seek me and live. 
Too few people are really living. Most people are merely existing. There are people in this room who really aren't living. You're just existing. Remember what Jesus said about eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, Jesus said, you would have known the Father. Do you want to know God? May I tell you what the first step is? Get to know his Son. Receive his Son for forgiveness of sin, and he will give you eternal life. And you will enter into this relationship with God that enables you to really know God. The God of David... Now think about some of the characteristics of David's God. He was a God of forgiveness. David says in one of his Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. Isn't that a wonderful thing? There's no place where east meets west. As far as that can be discerned, God just wipes the slate clean when we give our lives to him through Christ. And what about the companionship of the Lord? This is what the Word of God says about David and his relationship to God. In everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. Are you tired of being a dud? Tired of failing? Then understand, if you will seek God, life's worthiest occupation... He will raise you up to a place of success because he will be with you. Quit seeking the things that the world tells us to seek. For instance, Jeremiah said to his secretary, Baruch, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Earlier in that same book of Jeremiah, this is what the word of the Lord said. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let, let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows me. Listen, cut to the chase and seek God and know God. And then all these other things will be added to you. Isn't that what Jesus said? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Our God is a God of deliverance. My favorite story about David is when he slew Goliath this little pipsqueak of a teenager going up against a nine-and-a-half-foot man, and he has the audacity to take five smooth stones and a slingshot. He didn't even accept the offer of the armor of King Saul because it didn't fit him, and he takes this sling. But before he throws it, do you remember what he said to Goliath? The God of Israel is going to give you into my hands. He's going to deliver you to me today, and sure enough, he did. This is the kind of God who delivers us too. He's a God of discipline as well. He exercised discipline over and over as a, an expression of his love to David. We'll find rest. Now I've got a, a limited amount of time, very limited to finish. So I want you to listen carefully. The second thing, in addition to knowing God being accomplished by seeking him continually is this. Knowing God is accompanied by serving him completely. Look again at our verse of scripture. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Now I'm going to read some things to you in the interest of time so I don't chase any rabbits. So listen carefully. The divine priority for your life and my life is to seek God so that you can know God so that you can worship God. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. What is the second commandment? 
You shall not make any graven image. In other words, you shall not make idols is what God said. Service that matters in the kingdom of God flows out of seeking, knowing, and worshiping God. This is so contrary to the world's way of doing things. Service as a substitute for worship is idolatry. Activity may become the enemy of adoration. When God speaks to the priesthood in Ezekiel chapter 44, this is what he says. Come near to me to minister to me. Now, here's the way we tend to think when it comes to determining who a good Christian is. A good Christian is a real active person. Just busy, 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 right? But do you know what the primary goal of God for my life is? To minister to Him in seeking Him and knowing Him and worshiping Him. And now listen to this. Anyone who has spent time with God is actively and effectively serving God. Do you know who the real fruitful people are in the body of Christ? They're the people who have made the priority of their lives to spend time alone with God. And the result is they've heard from God and they don't spend their wills doing things that God has no concern about whatsoever for them to do. They're doing what God has told them to do. Wholehearted service springs from intimacy with God. The reason for so much half-hearted, unwilling service in the church is due to a lack of time spent with God. Ian Bounds, the great writer about prayer in the 20th century, said to be little with God is to be little for God. Do you want to be something for God? Do you want to make a dent on eternity? Then you need to spend time alone with God. Wholehearted service is enabled, and this is important, by God's strength. Remember what we saw from 1 Chronicles 16 11. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face continually. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Do you remember what David said? David Hassler's been teaching on the life of David. I'm sure David could quote this better than I. But this is what David said. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Now, he had some ups, didn't he? You know where it came from? It came from the Lord in him. Paul echoed the same idea when he says, there's nothing I cannot master with the help of the one who gives me strength. How often can you remember Jesus after a particularly busy and exhausting day of ministry, getting up early in the morning before dawn and going out to be alone with the Father? Why did he do that? It's because he had need of being replenished with the strength of God. And so do we. We have to come before the Lord and seek the Lord so that we can know Him. And as we worship Him, our power will be restored. His strength will be flowing through our lives. We won't be ministering in our own energy and we won't burn out. Do you know why people burn out in church? Why there are people who aren't here today who may have been actually active a year ago today? It's because they have the cart before the horse. Service has been placed before seeking God. We've got to put our priorities right. Much of what appears to be wholehearted service in the church is mere earnestness. Notice what this passage of Scripture says. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. This reminds me of what the writer of Hebrews says. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to do what? 
to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when I come before the Lord every day and I open it and I say, Lord, speak to me. I'm here to listen. I'm here to get my marching orders. I'm here to make an adjustment to you, Lord, and your will for my life. Then God speaks to me through his word. Have you ever picked the Bible up and read it and said, I can't believe this? It's like it was written for me. It was written 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, but it's as relevant to my life. It's, it's God speaking to me. Now, listen to a verse of Scripture that you're familiar with. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This verse is usually applied to discourage our judging another's usefulness to God by his physical appearance. But there's another way to apply it. Whereas men tend to judge another's spirituality by the amount of his activity... God judges man's spirituality by that man's motivation. Motivation is so important. If a man's service is motivated by time spent alone with God, then it is done with a whole heart in dependence upon God. Otherwise, it's no different from any other activity. You could just as well be at a football game, a basketball game, the theater, a movie, a soccer game, whatever you want to do with your spare time and be very involved in that as be here if you're not seeking the Lord out of a heart of dependence. Earnestness, Ian Bounds said, may be selfishness in disguise. Service motivated by earnestness is empty of spiritual power. It reminds us of what Paul writes in his letter to Timothy where he says about a group of people, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. There's no power they just look religious, and they are religious but not truly spiritual. Service motivated by earnestness is external and becomes manipulative. Those whose service is merely earnest are prone to manipulate others. They use their service as a means to ingratiate others to them, thus to fulfill their ends. What am I saying here? It is common within some church circles for people to use their service to get people to look to them instead of to the Lord. And God forbid that that would be true of our lives in this church, that there be any intent on anybody's part to draw attention away from the Lord by saying, look at me, look at me. I conclude what I'm sharing with you today, and you've been a very patient group today. I reminded you of something that is recorded in the book of Acts, the fourth chapter. Peter and John are men who have been brought before the high council of Israel. And when the men begin to discuss these men and what they're going to do with these two ragtag fishermen, so-called disciples of Jesus Christ, do you remember their description of these men? They're unlearned uneducated men, but they have been with Jesus. What was it that was enabling these common fishermen to turn Jerusalem upside down? What was it? They had sought the Lord with all their heart, and the result was that their service was empowered by the Spirit of God, resulting in their making a difference. It, I repeat, you are not at a disadvantage to hearing God or being of use to God if you will seek Him with a whole heart.
Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning, the chance to be with these dear brothers and sisters. And we do pray now that you would take what we have considered from you, from your word today, and that we would apply it to our lives. 